Extremely compelling music, the introduction, the overture to Kurt Weill's Der Silbersee, The Silver Lake, the text for which was written by the German expressionist writer Georg Kaiser. Now, they began, and indeed wrote the whole piece, in 1932. One of the principal reasons, I think, why it's not been performed much since is because what they created was extremely unwieldy. Three hours of text, plus about 85 minutes of music a tall order for any theatre or opera company to bring off. And, of course, it also begs the question very largely, what exactly is the Silver Lake? Is it an opera? Well, no, because there's far too much text. Is it a musical? Well, no, because the demands made upon the singers and, indeed, the orchestra are of a very high operatic order. The closest category that you could come to to actually sum the piece up would probably be music drama. After all, Kurt Weill's greatest god was Mozart... And the Zingspiel, that is opera with text, reached its absolute zenith, you could say, with the magic flute. The Silver Lake is like an amplification of that idea. Now, let me give you a sense of the story before I go any further. It's all about, well, it's basically a plea for reconciliation and tolerance in a depraved and cruel world. This is Germany, remember, in the early 1930s. You have a young man called Severin, who is desperately, hopelessly poor, and desperately, hopelessly hungry. And he and a group of mates have a kind of camp, like a small shanty town on the shores of the Silver Lake. They are so overcome with hunger, they decide the only thing they can do is rob a grocery store. And in so doing, they're intercepted by the police, and Severin takes a bullet from the policeman named Olim. Cut to Olim in the police station, writing his report, and he's overcome with remorse about what he's done to Severin. So he alters the report in order to uh, ensure Severin's release from jail and his innocence. Then, as if by magic, and I'm sure it's the kind of magic we've all dreamt of, a lottery agent appears out of nowhere and says, ah, Mr Olim, yes, you've just won an unmentionably large fortune. So Olim resigns his career in the police force and becomes a very wealthy man of leisure. And he immediately sets to in getting Severin out of the police hospital where he's convalescing and installs him in a castle that he's just bought in order to help him recover. Now, this is where the play is interesting because it sort of subverts or actually turns upside down the natural social order because there is Olim, good, honest, proletarian sort of fellow, who's now become lord of the manor. His maidservant, or housekeeper, is a former member of the gentry called Frau von Luber. She's a very poisonous piece of work. She discovers, remember at this point Severin still doesn't know that it was Olim that shot him. She discovers the truth about this and he causes, she causes uh, Severin to find out this news. So Severin is now bent on revenge against Olim. Enter into the frame the other principal character in the piece, who's a lady called Fenimore. She's slightly otherworldly. She's almost like an angel, almost like a Christ-like figure, because what she manages to bring about between Olim and Severin is reconciliation. And ultimately, at the end, they're forced out of the castle, having surrendered all possession of it to the evil Frau von Luber, who's now become gentry once again, as you can see. The natural order has reverted. And Olim and Severin are left wandering out into the woods and they decide that there is no hope for them anymore. There is no hope indeed for the future of mankind. So they're going to drown themselves in the Silver Lake. And miraculously, exactly as prophesied by the otherworldly Fenimore, as they try and enter the lake, it freezes over and they walk across it over to the other side. Now, the piece was and continues to be a sort of allegorical fantasy Part of that is to do with the fact of its subtitle. It was called The Silver Lake, 
A Winter's Tale. Now, for German audiences, that would be less of a reference to William Shakespeare and much more one to the German poet Heine, who had written a piece entitled Germany, A Winter's Tale, which is a mordant sort of story about 19th century Germany in the grip of political reaction and tyranny. Not hard, therefore, for the early 1930s German audience to transplant that into their own times. This was a Germany that was slithering inexorably into a winter of cold and darkness. A fantasy, yes, kind of a fairy story, hopefully enough so, so that the totalitarian censor would be too dim to convert allegorical meaning into something more realistic. Now, this is literally the last great jewel of what was an extraordinary period of cultural creativity, the Weimar years of Germany, basically between the end of the First World War and the rise of the Nazis to power. An age that spawned talents the like of Bertolt Brecht, composers like Kurt Weill, Hans Eisler, Paul Dessau, the theatre director, Erwin Piscator, created the fertile ground out of which grew Dada, a really amazing time. This was, as I say, the last great jewel, and it's proved and borne out by their chronological events. The piece was premiered in three German cities simultaneously. This is on the 18th of February 1933, in Leipzig, Magdeburg and Erfurt. By the second performance in Magdeburg, Nazi sympathisers were in the theatre and they caused a riot, caused the show to close, and the whole project sort of went on ice. Nine days after that premiere, so now 27th of February, the Reichstag burnt down, and following it, Hitler's suspension of civil liberties. Within a month of that, Weil was tipped off that the Nazis were coming for him. So within hours, he'd fled with Lotte Lenya across the border. Within hours of his fleeing, the Nazis arrived and smashed his front door down. How different things could have been had he not been tipped off. So you get the sense of the piece. It's sort of on a knife edge between the end of one glorious age and the beginning of a much darker one. And the first song we're going to perform for you now from the Silver Lake is called Hunger Song. This is Severin and his mates by the shores of the lake talking about their hunger and in so doing exposing the whole issue at the centre of the piece which had been at the centre of another great piece, the Threepenny Opera of Kurt Weill's and that time Bertolt Brecht. In other words, it's that great line which goes something like, that's all there is to it. The world is poor and man is foul, depraved, cruel, selfish. It's all about the essential conflict between the haves, the rich, and the have-nots, the poor. And I just want to, before we play the song through in its entirety, just perform the first chorus from this number. And you'll notice in the kind of spiky, dotted rhythms a sense of the absolute abject desperation of their situation, but at the same time that they're viewing hunger not just as a kind of practical need, but as something to fight against. Not because they can buy bread, because they can't buy any bread, they can't afford any food, but they're going to fight this hunger with their inner souls. <laughs> Tighten up your belt, just one more notch. We'll pull it until the leather almost breaks. I should have welcomed Alan Oak, who joins us singing the role of Severin. (laughs) 
So here it is now, the hunger song from Des Silvesay.
you can hear, I think, very clearly some of the influences that, that had been playing on Vile. There's elements of sort of Austrian folk music in there, like the settings from Das Knaben Wunderhorn that Mahler used so famously. There's a sense also of Jewishness, very strong sense, almost of klezmer music in that. I think you have to look at this piece kind of like a bridge between that sort of acidic, jazz-tinged, decadent, essentially jazz music that Weil had been writing through the Weimar years, the great highlight of which, of course, being the Threepenny Opera. But it's a bridge insofar as this piece is also looking forward to Broadway, which is where Weil ended up. Two years after he fled Germany, he finally arrived in New York. He stayed there for the rest of his life and made an incredibly successful career for himself as a Broadway musical composer. Bigger, sweeping melodies, great sense of elan. So this piece has elements of the former world, the Weimar world, and elements of that fat, big, free world environment that was Broadway, New York, America. Now, there are two dances we're going to play from you now, for you now from Des Ilbezay. The first, a foxtrot, and the second, a tango. What's interesting about Weil's use of foxtrot and tango in this piece is that unlike the kind of work he was writing in a piece like Threepenny Opera, which is a lot of the time parodistic, using dance styles and so on, in order to create a sense of parody. Here, it's much more honest, in a way. There's something much more simple about the intention. He's not trying to send anything up as such, but, of course, at the same time, he's using aspects of what the dance might stand for or symbolise in order to make a point. The first one is a foxtrot. Now, foxtrot was a style of dance that originated in the early part of the 20th century in America. It was known by various names, like fishwalk, bird hop, grizzly bear, and bunny hug. I kid you not, that was a name for one of these dances. Anyway, foxtrot was the, the name that eventually became most associated with this one two-step thing. It's two in a bar. It has an unmistakable quality, the foxtrot, which you'll recognise immediately, which is what you might call a foxtrot symbol. A small symbol, struck, and then immediately dampened, always on the second and the fourth beats, the weak beats of the bar. Let's just hear one of those. Unmistakable quality. Many thanks to Peter Beeman, the percussionist with the BBC Concert Orchestra. There's one other little section of this I want to play you. In fact, it's the start of this foxtrot, because what Weil does is automatically interesting. He sets up this foxtrot texture, and then he immediately subverts it by when the string's coming in, going into three in a bar rather than the two. So it's very unusual. You don't find a foxtrot. I don't know how you would dance to it. You're going along two in a bar, and suddenly you're going to three. You'll feel it. It's kind of an awkward gear shift. And I think he does it for lots of very good reasons. goes on and there are more of these funny gear shift passages where the 3-4 music completely subverts the nice, sweet, easy flowing swinging foxtrot that he set up the second of the two dances that we're going to perform from, from the Silver Lake is a tango, this is the point in the piece when the lottery agent appears that moment as I was saying earlier that we've all I'm sure dreamt of to tell Olim the policeman that he's suddenly very rich indeed and it oozes a kind of seductive power Tango is, after all, a very, very seductive dance with its origins in Argentina. Well, I say its origins in Argentina. It sort of emerged in Argentina, but it in turn had been sort of borrowed from Cuba, from basically the habanera, that rhythm, da, da, ya, da, 
up, which you get, for instance, in Carmen, most famously. When it becomes a tango, it's got an extra, extra beat in it. So it goes, yeah, da, 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 da quality, which is quite interesting. And he uses it to great effect. You've got this lottery agent talking about how Olim can now become the most selfish man on the planet. He talks about how he's going to be so overjoyed at the interest and the compound interest if he just manages his money wisely. The lottery agent exhorts him to build a concrete tower around himself and to block his ears to any screaming and misery, any poverty beyond his own particular consciousness, that he could have a field which is made fertile by the amount of blood that's been injected into it, and in that, his seeds will grow. It's a really foul piece of work, using the sensuality of the tango to absolutely breathe the power and allure of money. It's very interesting, this number, where the lottery agent is busy telling Olim how to make his money grow and how to be as selfish as possible, to harden his heart, to effectively ice... And you get this kind of refrain from the lottery agent three times when he says, Zintz und Zintze Zintz. In other words, interest and compound interest. And interestingly, Weil puts a little counter melody over the top of that, which you hear in the woodwinds, which is a melody of kind of plaintive regret, the voice of Olim's conscience, perhaps, which predetermines the fact, as we well know, he's never going to be that selfish man because he's already very clearly a man of great compassion who's already trying to do right the wrong he's done by having shot Severin. So here's the two numbers, the Foxtrot first, which is purely instrumental, and then Alan Oak once again singing the role of the slippery lottery agent. Rat. 
sein Geldanliegen mit Nutzen.
And so as that tom-tom slips away into the night, so that lottery agent slithers back into that dark sewer called capitalism. Now, we move on to a very different sort of number now, a real ballad in the old court vile sense. This is music born out of the kind of ballads that were written for agit-prop theatre, literally agitation and propaganda. A whole proletarian movement, well, with some elements of the educated or enlightened middle class as well, a way of using art to further political objectives. And this song has a very, very powerful message. This is the first time we hear from Fenimore in the opera. She is this, as I said, rather otherworldly person. And she sings this song, and it's all about Caesar, you know, the great despot to end all despots, who was determined to have his own empire and, of course, perished in the pursuit of such. It's only a very thinly veiled parallel to Hitler, of course, and it was part of what made the Nazis so furious with the peace as a whole. It has this kind of power, a really dogged, dogged power. The lesson of it, of course, is don't try and rise up against your neighbour because your neighbour will defeat you. Do not hate your fellow man because your fellow man is there to be loved, to be got along with, not to be hated. That's the message of the song as far as Kaiser and Vile were concerned. But of course, Caesar was this thinly veiled allegory to Hitler and terrified the hell out of the Nazi party. It's a very powerful piece of work. Very pleased to welcome Tara Harrison in her role as Fenimore. We're just going to do one little excerpt from this piece, which is the middle section of the ballad. It's very strident and powerful, the first part of it, and indeed that's the music that returns towards the end of it. But there's this very, very little soft section in the middle where the singer is talking about how the, the, the people who are all opposed to Caesar, these friends, met in secret and plotted how to overthrow him. And then on the fateful Ides of March, the noble Brutus struck the fatal blow to Caesar. Et tu Brute, famous text. And it goes on to say as it was in Latin, because that was the language of the time. Just play you that bit. 163. <laughs> Diese Sorge und seine Seele und Stirne, seine Nöte, anders ob's nicht war. Et tu Brute, rebe auf Lateinisch, wie es dort die Landessprache war. Did you hear that fantastically queasy writing in the strings where they go, wah, wah, wah? That's when Caesar is swaying around with a knife in his breast. <laughs> Something else you may notice about this music, it's scored for a very conventional sort of symphony orchestra, very much in marked contrast to most of what Weill had written up until this point. There are not in this orchestra any whining banjos. There are no plangent saxophones. There's no screeching harmonium. He'd already moved into a different place. And again, it sort of prefigures the kind of glossy Broadway band that he was to take on board once he started writing in New York. Let's perform it for you now, The Ballad of Caesar's Death. Rom, <laughs> 
You can already hear, I think, in the way that the singer's lines are written and the kind of sound that's required, that this is clearly not a piece for pure actors. But then, of course, as I was saying earlier, it's not really a piece for pure singers either. Jonathan Miller always used to make a great point. He used to say that singers were a bit like seals. I'm not talking in aesthetical terms here, the two on my right. A bit like seals because they're always kind of unhappy, get a bit itchy when they're on the dry rocks, the dry rocks of dialogue much happier when they're five or ten fathoms full of glorious song. It's a very good point and true for many singers. I'm sure not for the two that are with us today. But big technical demands. And as you'll hear a little later on, there's a huge revenge aria that Severin sings, which is straight out of the 19th century, Verdian grand opera, something way beyond the abilities of most singing actors. We're going to perform two arias now, back to back, Two very contrasting pieces, in fact. The first is a very introspective kind of ballad, and it's the first example we get, I suppose, of the deeper and more intense nature of Fenimore. She sings this whole aria about how she wishes she didn't have any relations, no cousins, no aunts, no sisters, no brothers, because they all make demands on her. The outward reason for this is because she's been dragged to the castle where Olim and Severin are living, by none other than Frau von Luber, the evil housekeeper, who is Fenimore's aunt. But of course, there's a deeper message or a deeper point to this song that she's trying to make. She's saying that, essentially, however much the relationships we have with people close to us are valuable, are full of love and full of meaning, 
that the awful, sad truth is that we are all actually totally alone. So a much sort of softer, more internalised sense of Fenimore than what we heard in the Ballad of Caesar's Death. We follow that with a most explosive aria, the ultimate revenge aria, really. This is straight out of 19th century grand opera. I mean, Verdi could almost have written a piece like this. Obviously, the sound world, the language would have been slightly different, but the essence and the power and the drama of the piece is absolutely in line with great 19th century opera composers such as Verdi. Basically, this is Severin ranting at the man who shot him. At this point in the piece, he still doesn't know that that man is Olim sitting across the dinner table from him, the man who's bought the castle and has installed Severin in it and fed him these amazing meals every day and helping him, is helping him back to health. Severin still doesn't know this. He's just railing at the unknown adversary, that policeman who shot him and what he's going to do to him. And he sings very expressively about it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, blood for blood, and ultimately a life for a life. It's very, very powerful stuff. And it just underlines, once again, the point I was making before about the fact that this piece cannot really be performed by actors, even singing actors in a conventional sense, because the demands it makes on the voices are extreme. This aria could only really be sung by a Helden tenor, which is not a quality or a voice you find very often, even in the straight theatre, let alone even in the lyric theatre, there's an amazing quality to it. It builds and builds and builds, this driving rhythmic quality. And the apotheosis of it is an eruption of brass, the trumpets and trombones, in this huge new theme that occurs after Severin has finished. So now let's perform these two arias for you, a plaintive and internalised one from Fenimore and an aria of utter fury from Severin. Das ist kein Leben. 
Now, time for some questions, if there are any. You said how this work came at the end of Val's time at Germany. He f fled to America shortly after its first performance. Um, there's a tremendous, robust, rich, very distinctive quality to this music. 
What happened to it when he got to Broadway? Did he leave it behind? I don't associate his Broadway works with this, with this style. Or was it the allure of the, the zints? Yeah, the zints, yes, the interest. Good question, actually. I mean, I think Vile proved himself, once he settled in New York, to be a very adaptable artist. And indeed, that went much further than just his music making. I mean, having been close to being a communist whilst he was living in Germany, he, shall we say, smoothed out his political bumps and became a much more just of a kind of a liberal sort of fella by the time he was sort of really settled in America, which also, of course, meant that he didn't suffer as many of his colleagues did under the McCarthy witch hunt, or at least not to nearly the same extent as many others. But musically, yes, he, he obviously could change his spots and he could see the kind of sound world, the kind of expectation of the Broadway theatre, the big Broadway musical lyric theatre. And obviously he knew fairly quickly how he would fulfil that style and make it his own. So... There are always going to be elements of the music of Silver Lake and the Threepenny Opera and many other things besides. But, yes, it's a new style, and he left a lot of Europe behind. How close a collaborator was Kaiser with Kurt Weill? I think very close. I mean, as close as, as Brecht was with Weill when they created pieces like Threepenny Opera, the Seven Deadly Sins, and so on. They worked very closely together, and indeed, it was through Georg Kaiser that... Weil met his future wife, Lottie Lenya, because she was living um, as a penniless actor-singer with the Kaisers in their family home. And so, yes, they worked very, in very, very close company on the score through the last part of 1932. And I think they both had a very strong sense of what the piece was trying to say, and they, were, they shared the same vision for the piece. They also had, I think, an acute sense of taste in, in, in dramaturgical issues. So the thrust of the piece, the fact that actually when you look at it in its entirety, the music thins down as the play goes on. There's more and more text, which presents a big problem for productions of the piece because it's like the music has almost all but gone away. But I think in a way they had a point to make there, that they were looking at what was ultimately the, the essential cruelty of the world and the aloneness of the world. So the piece gets drier bit by bit. We've been working today from a concert suite drawn up from the music of Des Ilbezay by one of the greatest Kurt Weill scholars alive, David Drew. And the last selection from it that we're making now is a duet. And this is where you get the first sense in the piece of Fenimore truly having a kind of almost prophetic quality and role within the function of the piece, that she is trying to persuade Severin that it's going to be okay for him to leave the castle ultimately and that somehow or other the Silver Lake will bear him across, that he will actually be able to walk across the waters. So there's obviously a kind of a Christ reference in that. But it's really suggesting deep down that faith, hope, love, compassion, reconciliation, those things ultimately will ensure that the world doesn't end up being a very, very black place. And you do find yourself wondering... What Kaiser and Weil thought was the future for these two men, Olim and Severin, when they finally do end up going across the ice? What was it that was going to lie beyond? Kaiser lived in a house on the Lake Peetz, which is in a, a suburb of Berlin. And so he obviously looked out across this great lake and to the very dark woods that lay beyond it. And for me, it's pretty clear that for both Kaiser and Weil, they knew really what the outcome would be. They could see the darkness that was approaching that darkness ultimately was the virtual apocalypse that was the Second World War. 
So I just want to play you one little section of that, which is right at the end, just before the singers stop, where she, Fenimore, is persuading him that he will be able to walk across the water. He's saying, how can you walk across the water? And she's saying, the Silver Lake will bear you on your way. And just after they finish that, the music melts into the most delicious three in a bar, like a sort of celestial waltz, which is just the best way to describe it, I guess. Let me just give you that little bit. get the idea. A waltz of pure luminescence, moonlight shimmering on the waters or the ice of the Silver Lake. So we'll perform this duet for you now, which sort of brings a sense of conclusion to this piece. Actually, there's more music following it to the end of the actual music drama. But there it is, the Silver Lake, a very little-known piece, and yet a passionate piece, a plea for reconciliation, compassion in a world of violence and cruelty. To perform it with us, soprano Tara Harrison singing the role of Fenimore, the tenor Alan Oak performing the role of Severin, the BBC Concert Orchestra and me. Schattensbar und vor dem Winde ihren Staub erhebt. Es muss schön sein zu wohnen in dem Wind und nach dem Rot, wo sich die Wolde hebt. Doch gibt es Windungen, die so ermüden und immer wieder kehrt der Weg zurück. Wenn ich das Ziel mit meinem Augen Bedient mein Fuß den kühnen Augenblick. Wo eine Brücke buckelt ihren Bogen, wie diese Wandertages Ende sei. Am Himmel sind doch stille Augen zu. Oh, 
der Pfad ist schmal, der durchdacht ist ich leitet, und dornig wuchert Distelkraub und stiegt. Ich bleibe fügos, wie mein Fuß ausreitet, und schreien Eulen, ich vernehm sie nicht. Die Nebel steigen, und schon ist die Nähe des Wassers, das im Munde fröstelt da. Ist der weiße Dampf von warmen Quellen und meinem Ziele bin ich ewigs nah. Es täuscht der Dunst und er verirrt die Schritte und es erträgt den Weg der tiefe See. Ich passe mich und deinem engsten
Du lernst es zu spät, wenn der Himmel 